Hello, welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, this week, James Bond is standing stoically on a rooftop somewhere in London, somberly watching the European flag being lowered. Three PM. <laughs> I like this time. Um, so I'm your fill-in host, James Page, co-founder of MI6 HQ and MI6 Confidential Magazine. And this week, I am joined by Bill Koenig and David Lee. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi, I'm Bill Koenig, and uh, I run a blog called The Spike Man. And I'm David Lee, and I run jenkinsdossier.com. Excellent. Well, happy Friday, chaps. And it's strange we've been doing this podcast for like, like nine months now, ten months, and there's a new Eon Productions film out this week, uh, but it wow. isn't James Bond. But it's from the producers of James Bond. That yeah, is it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's like we've had nothing from them for ages, and there are two films in the space of a few months. So um, I think it's fair to say, Bill, that you took one for the team and um, <laughs> went, went to the first, one of the first screenings of the film in America last night. What was your hot take on the rhythm section? Well, first of all, let me describe the surreal circumstances. Um, I always intended to see it this weekend because, you know, this movie has been delayed for almost a year and uh, it is an Eon production. So, I, and I was really thinking I should probably see it on the Thursday night preview showing because, you know, I might get caught up with things during the weekend, so I'm going to go tonight. So the showing was going to be at 7.15 at the theater I usually go to. So I went online to get a ticket, and when I got to book my seat, there were all of two seats sold. And... um which took me aback because at first I thought, well, maybe it's like all booked and there's only like two seats available. Like, no, it was the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> so, uh, so I quickly bought one just to get my uh, preferred, uh, I prefer to sit on the aisle. So got my seat and um, so then I went and when I arrived at first I had dinner and then when I arrived in the theater, there were two people not in the, not the two that were, had already booked when I booked, but two other people, and they were like at the top row. Oh, okay. And so then I got my seat, and then the two people who had booked their tickets uh, before I arrived, they then got there. And uh, it was just the five of us until the preview started, and then there was a late arrival of about three people during the uh, trailers. <laughs> and, you know, Three more came in, though, before the movie started, so a grand total of eight people. And uh, to be honest, the last time, this is going to be a really old reference, last time I can remember sitting in a theater that empty was in 1978 when The Swarm, an, Ir an Irwin Allen disaster movie that just bombed horribly, <laughs> uh, was like my future wife and myself were like the only people in the theater. I couldn't believe it. So it's been a long time since I've been in a theater that empty early, right. so early in a theatrical run. So, so it um, was almost like you had a private screening. 
Almost. Actually, there's probably a lot of private screens have more people than that. Maybe it's a problem with the, um, with the booking. You said you, you thought there were maybe only two or three uh, seats already taken. And maybe, maybe uh, lots of people all over the states are thinking the same thing. So they're not booking because <laughs> they think most seats are already taken. I suspect that's not the case. <laughs> I just, I, it, anyway. So I, uh, I sat down, watched the movie, and, uh, you know, I ended up doing a review for the Spy Command blog, and I gave it a C, which is a passing grade. But to be honest, I just felt emotionally disconnected from the film because, you know, I didn't find the lead character that interesting. Um, I mean, it, it's not that the uh, Blake Lively doesn't turn in a good performance. She does. She's you know she does what she's called upon to do. I just I, I just couldn't get into it. So after a while, I'm just like kind of watching it in terms of the craft. Like, oh, those are some good shots. Oh, that's some good acting. Um, I will say though. Um, it's the uh, music title card reads music score produced by Hans Zimmer music by Steve. I think his name is Mazzaro. You know, he's one of the guys who works at, uh, or is affiliated with the Zimmer's uh, company, remote control productions. And the music score seemed awfully stereotypically Hans Zimmer, even to the point of having some brooms here and there. And I'm thinking, well, uh, listening to the score, I'm thinking, this is kind of the point people kind of brought up, brought up when Zimmer was first announced. Are we going to get like Nolan, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan Batman music with uh, No Time to Die? And of course, this is a movie and it's a much different tone than Bond and all that. But uh, uh, I didn't feel like real good. Uh, listening to the score but um, anyway so do you feel bill that it was kind of like the film is what it is out of the gate or did did the one year roughly of delays and holdups and everything do you sense that affected it in any way or was it a case of over tinkering or was it just like maybe the concept out of the gate with the creative team they had didn't match up it might have been just the uh, concept out of the gate i i couldn't really see Nothing struck me as excessive tinkering. It just seemed it was what it was. Um, it's one problem I had with the concept was, okay, spoiler alert. Um, so Lake Lively is, you know, her family has been killed in an aircraft accident and she was left destitute. And so she is such a wreck that in a short amount of time, she becomes a drug-addicted prostitute after having had this really promising academic career. And it's like, I get personal tragedy you know, has an effect on you, but that's a long way to fall. And, and she's a prostitute, so like, that, if part of the purpose of doing this movie was to, you know, empower women characters i'm not sure that's quite the way to do it um 
I'm probably not the person to make that comment, but it just, it, you know, it bothered me. It's like I called my wife to tell her that I was going to go to the movie and I gave her a brief description of the, of the plot summary. She, she said, I, she's a prostitute. No, I don't want to see that. Um, and then, okay, real spoiler alert. At one point after she becomes, trains herself to become this avenging killer, She's going to take out one guy by pretending she's a prostitute. So it's like, okay, she's drawing upon her former life as part of this assassination attempt. And here's the thing, you know, it's based on a series of novels and the author of the novels is the screenwriter. So the, you know, which doesn't happen that often. So the guy who conceived the character is actually getting a chance to adapt his character for the screen. So it's not that this is something that, you know, some screenwriter who has no skin in the game has done. This is something the author of the original source material has done. So, um, so partly for that reason, I kind of had trouble just getting into it. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. A lot of the, rev- <clears throat> the reviews I read, Bill said basically it feels like a two and a half hour movie, but it's an hour and forty. <laughs> <laughs> An hour forty nine. Actually, in, in my review, I actually did compliment them on the fact they were able to keep it under yeah. two hours, which seems yeah. like a miracle um, these days. The the other thing about your review is that you you mentioned that um, one of your fellow viewers uh, commented on on the film at the end to you as well. well she uh, was she she was one of the two people that booked first <laughs> <laughs> because I had. Um, before the movie started, she was going. Uh, she was going to the concession stand, and she saw me. And for some reason, we struck up a conversation. I said, "Hi, I, I know that you, uh, you and your friend there, were, were the first two people to book a seat because I was the third. And she laughed, and we talked a little bit. And so then that exchange that I cited in the review that was when the the credits were rolling, and that's when she stopped and said that to me. <laughs> and so I. So I took it she was not a satisfied customer. So, right. The the other kind of quip I read was for something called the rhythm section, it has a lot of issues with pacing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, a lot of movie reviewers know when something's not going to hit, and I think they spend their time in the two hours coming up with the witty retorts, and they do actually reviewing the film. But um, I thought it was a good one. So the numbers are not looking good because opening night previews, according to deadline. $235,000 from 2,256 theaters, which is considered a wide release, which puts the average attendance at, based on average ticket prices across the country at about less than 10 people a screening. So, which, which means you know, my experience was like pretty much on average. Yeah, <laughs> on average, like every theater probably had 10 people in it, which is not a good sign. Um, Paramount spent $30 million for domestic rights. Um, the film cost 50 to make. It's The projections right now is it's going to struggle into the higher double digits for the, for the weekend, maybe $8 million. Um, not exactly dead in arrival, but probably not going to be resuscitated for a sequel. Well, 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 just to provide some perspective. So in 2015, there was this Man from Uncle movie, which, of course, I went on the first night. And I think on its Thursday night showings, it had $900,000 en route to a $13 million opening weekend in the U.S. And it was considered a flop. But 
based on the early figures for the rhythm section, that was a runaway hit um, by comparison. Um, because I remember in the there were a lot of empty seats in that that showing I went to for the man from Uncle, but there were at least like 20, 25 people. Uh, it was a lot more than eight, whatever it was. Um, and, and word of mouth is not going to be too kind to this based on the reviews. And Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, we watched it yesterday, right, Bill? It started off in like the mid-40s, and it's plunged to now, I think, 32%, um, which is pretty toxic. For the blog, I did what I usually do with the Bond movies. I'll, I'll, I did a kind of a survey of, of reviews, and at the time I started it, it was like at 45%. By the time I you know, by the time I started writing, it was down to 41%. An hour after I posted, it was down to 39%. And it's gone down since. Um, and I forgot the number of reviews when I posted. It was like, you know, there were obviously going to be more, but it wasn't like there were like two or three. I mean, it was in the, oh, well over a dozen, probably close to two dozen reviews then. And so I'm sure there's been, you know, there were more and more of the ones that have been uh, filed are in the uh, pan category. I think it's fair to say that I'm not even going to get the opportunity to see it if, even if I wanted to. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I'm wondering if they'll even uh, release it in Spain, let alone bothering with uh, an ori original language version. <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it was like again using that man from uncle example so at the theater i you know went to they put the man from uncle on, only on two screens on the first weekend and was down to one screen the next weekend so i don't know how many screens they have it on today as we record this but i can't imagine the theater is going to be very encouraged to put it on more than one um if that next weekend um yeah, I'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I posted on our write-up that um, their official Twitter account, which is what they're using to promote the movie, only had 600 and something followers. Yeah, I saw that. Week. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, um, I, as, I of, as of today... Of, I followed it out of sympathy. I know, um, as, of, as of today, the film's out, wide release, it's up to 677. So. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I suspect that Paramount may have pulled back their advertising budget and publicity budget on this one, knowing that the reviews, the test screenings, probably didn't. Do <laughs> I mean, I, I talked to another webmaster, and he said, oh, he he said he had seen it on TV ads. I haven't. The only ads I've seen are either on Twitter or on YouTube. Um, and it's kind of unpredictable. It just, it depends on what video you happen to call up. And I assume there's some kind of rotation for ads on, on YouTube. I, I don't know, but those are the only two places I've even seen ads for it. Yeah. The last couple of ads I've seen have actually shortened it and have actually took the, from the producers, James Bond off the intro, <laughs> but may, maybe oh. I'm just, maybe I'm just reading too much into that. Yeah, I've got to say, though, when it was first announced, it didn't really appeal very much to me. And it just kind of sounded half-baked all along. So it doesn't surprise me that it's gone wrong. But although I would have liked to have improved wrong, but it doesn't sound like I have. Well, I, I gave it a grade of C. And my thinking was, 
there were aspects about the craft. I, as I said earlier, the actors seemed to be, you know, giving it their all. Um, some of the photography was interesting. Some of the locations were interesting. Some of the visuals were interesting, but I just, I just didn't get into the story at all. And like I said, by, by the second half of the movie, I'm just kind of sitting there and just, I'm viewing it totally analytically as opposed to, which is not a good thing when you're watching a movie, you're supposed to be into the flow. And I was totally out of the flow. And somebody asked me, cause I guess there's a Michael G. Wilson cameo in it. Um, Someone asked me where it was. I said, "Beats me." I, <laughs> I, I guess I wasn't even motivated enough to like look for it. Um, also, I actually did have to go to the bathroom once, so it was. Brief, <laughs> but maybe I missed it for that. But uh, Bill, that's not good vibes for uh, no time to die. <laughs> if you can't make it through an hour and forty-nine. Sorry. <laughs> I'm but it, it depends I, I, on the film, right? Yeah. I do. Uh, like, I'm not gonna. I'm not willing to hold it for this. I I also got an, a uh, glass of wine to get me through the second half as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> um, not recommended. Is the is that a fair assessment? Unless you got nothing uh, else to do. You know, I'll put it this way: if you are a James Bond fan and you feel the need to support Eon and everything it does, go to it. But, you know, I, I have the feeling the general audience is kind of not paying much attention. Right. And there's a small matter of the Super Bowl this weekend in the United States. Yeah. Yes, there is. Good weekend to launch a movie. Well, and that's another reason I decided to go Thursday night. It's like, I know I'm going to watch the game, even though I increasingly have my issues with American football with head injuries and so forth. I still, I'll still watch the Super Bowl. So, like, that's a significant chunk of time. I was not going to be able to watch the movie. It's like Thursday night is actually was going to be the best time for me to catch it. And, and so I did. Excellent. All right. Should we go into James Bond business for yes. real James Bond business? Excellent. Yes. All right, so um, since our last post, uh, our last podcast, Billy Eilish had just been announced, and there was a lot of who's Billy Eilish. Um, uh, well, could you escape her on the front of any website that covers news, magazines, radio, whatever? Been everywhere with multiple Grammy wins. Yeah, good timing with the gonna, announcement, though, wasn't it? Right, and she's going to be uh, singing at the Oscars next week, so. Um, in terms of like visibility, I don't think it could have gone any better for for this film. Well, um, after the rhythm section, Eon has to have some uh, something positive going for them, don't they? <laughs> yes, and and meanwhile, a lot of fans are assuming she's going to sing the "No Time to Die" song. And maybe she is, but if she does, that's going to be a pretty major departure from previous Oscar shows because uh, yeah. they, they usually sing songs that are have been in movies that have been released, not movies that are yeah. going to be released. So two, two points on that. Somebody mentioned that she might be singing the In Memoriam segment. So No Time to Die wouldn't 
necessarily be the best choice. <laughs> no. Um, no. And second it is somebody mentioned sense that imp- of humor. Right. I mean, it'd be fine with me, but I'm sure most of you. <laughs> um, somebody else pointed out that actually, if you perform it at the Oscars before the film's out, it, you disqualify it from best original song. I saw somebody dispute that as a rule, and you know what? I I don't know but, what the rule is. You know, is. the Academy rules are so. It's like a pile. It's like a pile, yeah. It's like a pile of spaghetti. I mean, and at the end of the day, if they want to cut somebody, they'll cut somebody. If they want to put somebody in, they'll put somebody. In. Honestly, don't think there's any way they would use the Oscars telecast to, because then that sets a precedent at the Oscars where it'd be now a promotional platform, and I don't think that's what the Academy wants. That yeah, I, I, I can't. Or, I can't see it either. But uh, no, it's kind of like picking picking favorites at that point, picking winners. Um, <laughs> Picking and, future winners early, I should say, because the whole point of the show is they pick winners. But you know what I mean? It's like they're, they're doing favors for studios to yeah. promote their new upcoming films. I don't think they want to do anything about that. Um, and that whole show is just dire anyway. And it's been in the slumps for years. And they keep claiming like six billion people or something to watch it. No, no they don't. Well, and, uh, I, will, I will follow my habit of a lifetime and not watch it. There you go. Problem solved. Well, I do watch it at least more often than not, and but it, it but at the same time, it it is getting they're making it harder and harder on me to do so because um, as an example, and this I'm going to cite a Bond example here. So the Oscar show used to include honorary Oscars, and they used to include the Irving Thalberg Award, which was given to a producer for lifetime achievement. For example, Albert R. Broccoli in the 1982 show. And Roger Moore came on to introduce him. They then showed a, a bunch of James Bond clips, and then out came Albert R. Broccoli, and he gave this really gracious speech, and it's like a, it was a really great moment. But now, you know, to cut, uh, to reduce the time that the broadcast takes, they now do that stuff the honorary oscars and the thalberg in the years that they give it out in a separate november event and then they might show like two minutes of highlights on the oscar show and um some of the most genuinely emotional oscar show moments have occurred you know with the thalberg with the honorary oscars and like well sorry we've got some stupid skits we want to run so we're going to run that that stuff off to the separate november event and show highlights and it just irritates me all to pieces because you go to youtube the academy has posted a lot of stuff you know highlights from various oscar shows and like a bunch of them you wouldn't see today on the oscar show in its current format so there you go of long run times because the Oscars often goes over three hours. <laughs> right? But it goes over three hours with commercial breaks. Um, Rumours still circulating um, that No Time to Die might be two hours and 54 minutes. Please do not do this. 
somebody <laughs> has put into Wikipedia that the running time is three hours and 15 minutes. I'll go and edit it in a minute and say it's going to be uh, three hours, 25. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying I believe it, but like, but, but that was pointed out to me last night. I looked at it like, yeah, that's what it says right now. It's like, what is going on here? Um, and yes, with Wikipedia, people edit it. It's like, I get that. But it's like the, the fact that someone could get away with that. And it's like no one's like instantly calling bullshit shows there's at least some uncertainty about it. Yeah, and a lot of uh, worried Bond fans. Well, and just for, you know, for context, the Ten Commandments was three hours and 39 minutes, but it at least had an intermission. You could go to the bathroom. Uh, yeah, well, so I, no, I don't know. No. Maybe, maybe it'll have a, a really long pre-title sequence, and so the bathroom break is dur- during the uh, actual title sequence. <laughs> you, 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 miss, you miss Billie Eilish that way as well if you don't like her. <laughs> I'm not saying one way or the other, but... Uh, I don't know. Well, we we haven't seen any pushback on the near three hour runtime, so you know until we hear otherwise, there's no reason to suspect it's wrong right now. And the fact that that number keeps popping up at different Universal distributors around the world, the arms of Universal, sorry, is kind of like hmm, the number seems to be coming from the same place. Right, it's 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 worrisome. Put it that way. You don't if you don't want this to be three hours, that's a worrisome trend. Yeah. So, other things that worried me this week. <laughs> this has been quite a lot, actually, when you think about it. Um, there was Collider put out a one-minute interview with Ben Whishaw. Yes. Talking about No Time to Die, and I'll probably insert the clip here because I'm gonna I'm gonna just crap all over exactly what he said, but. And what about working with Kerry? It was great. And you know what was amazing was that he treat, he treated it or was able to approach it. It felt to me as almost as if it were an independent film, you know. It, and it was quite improvisational and quite... Um, uh, we didn't do many takes. Um, it, was, it was very light. Um, sometimes quite chaotic, but... Um, I'm very excited to see how he's um, constructed the final film. Along the lines of, we kind of did a lot of improvisation on this, and it'll be interesting to see what the film looks like when it's finished. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't actually listen to it. I, I read, I read what you wrote about it, though, uh, James and. Uh... And I, I, I agreed with you that uh, it doesn't really, you know, how does that fit with um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Um, saving the script. Saving Phoebe Waller-Bridge has yeah. saved the script. It, it, After... it's, like, it's like, Phoebe, Phoebe, what, what am I supposed to say here where it's just a line of X's? So, oh, just, just say something, whatever. <laughs> You're cute. You're an actor. Just do it. Now, to be fair to Ben Wishaw, he doesn't necessarily that the dialogue was improvised, or there was a lot of improvisation. It might be 
Bond films are usually tightly storyboarded and maybe it was a kind of like on the day they decided to shoot the scene a different way, right? Or they felt like they tried different things out to see what would look, you know, feel good and look good. It might not have been the dialogue, but if you t- if if an actor says there was a lot of improvisation in this film, I instantly think, oh, they, they just kind of like used the script as a template, you know? Which, you know, at two point, David, it's like, I, I don't know how that fits with them banging on about Phoebe Waller-Bridge rescuing the script. I mean, it's like, those, it's, two, thing, what, those two things cannot both be true. Right. Yeah, and, and, and while, while, while we're talking about Q, and this is completely off topic, uh, in Spectre in, in Q Lab, um, in Q's lab, we, the, there was a motorbike, which was a Norton Apparently, and Norton yes. have gone past. Uh, right. Was it this week or last? I can't remember now. It was this week. This, this week. week they're looking for a rescue deal. I think yeah. they're looking for a rescue deal this week. Yeah. Um, well, of course, Bond uses Triumph in No Time to Die. Yeah. So, um, so they'll, the they'll go bust in a few years as well. <laughs> well, speaking of, speaking <laughs> of rescue deals and vehicle manufacturers, uh, Aston Martin just got their uh, life saved. A friendly billionaire. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but is that confirmed yet? I don't think there's Why? been an official statement. Because there, there was another report, because um, this is, this is um, I can't remember what the guy's first name is, but uh, Stroll is the father of, of Lance Stroll, the Formula One driver. Yes. And um, there, I mean, the, the rumour to today is that he is going to take a, a big investment in Aston Martin and um, his... The other investors are going to put in money too. They yeah. did put out a statement today as we we're recording this. The, his interest had been you know, attributed to unidentified sources before, but apparently he, they put out something today, an official announcement. And then his F1 team, which is Racing Point, it, it becomes um, Aston Martin. Yeah, but, apparently next, apparently next year rather than this year. But yeah. But the, the, there was um, there was a, an article I read a few days ago, and talking about Mercedes uh, pulling out of Formula One from 2022, and uh, the suggestion there was that Aston Martin take over mercedes then so uh, i don't know i don't know really how that fits right and red bull racing has had a tie-up with bond yeah um, yeah well i mean red bull yeah. red bull the badged aston martin as well at the moment so uh, that, uh, that's true i think they yeah. probably they probably have to like finish that deal out this year 2020 and then they go to the new in arrangement fact, 2021 in, in fact red bull had a hand in in uh designing the aston martin Hypercars, yes, the the uh, Valkyrie and the the other one, which I can't remember at the moment. Valhalla. Valhalla, yeah. I I just as we've been talking, I just called up the story. So apparently, uh, Lawrence Stroll will pay 182 million pounds, 239 million dollars for 16.7 percent of Aston Martin. And then Aston Martin will raise an additional 318 million pounds, 417 million dollars from uh, existing investors. So apparently Aston Martin will fight uh, fight to live another day. So Andy Palmer might not, though, CEO. 
Yeah, I suspect his days are numbered. <laughs> he, well, right. their their lead PR guy, Simon Spruill, recently announced his relocation to Fiat Chrysler here in the States. <laughs> and uh, So when the, I, when, the, when the PR guy quits... <laughs> it's kind of a sign, yes. And I know, and I have met Simon. I have talked to Simon. I first met him in 2000. Uh, I was working at uh, the Indianapolis Star, and I was doing a story about the whole business of F1 because F1 was coming to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And he is like, you know, he is the most Brit of the Brits. You know, he had cufflinks with the Union Jack, and I assume he still has them. And right. uh, a cup of tea in his hand. Yeah, and so he went from. He went from uh, Jaguar. He was with Jaguar at the time because the Ford team was Jaguar. So he went from Jaguar to Nissan, and then he landed back at Aston Martin back home. And uh, but apparently, the home cooking was getting a little not to his liking. So then he, now he's gone to Fiat Chrysler. So the other thing a lot of people, listeners, probably don't realize that Aston Martin owe a lot of people a lot of money. So. Like late last year, they took 150 million dollars out in uh, in debt loans, which were extremely expensive to pay. They back. are fairly highly leveraged. <laughs> yes, and they've lost three quarters of their company value since they floated on the stock exchange. So um, yeah, it's that's... it's kind of if if only the motor industry was in a better financial health. I mean, they'd be uh, ripe for the picking for somebody to come along and. Yeah, I I, I mean, I, we've talked about Aston before, and but and. One of my uh, one of my big criticisms about them is the way that they they have tried to um, get into all kinds of other things which are non core activities for them. And you know, they, their core activity is making sports cars. What they should do is just focus on on sports cars, yes. making the best sports they, sports cars they can, uh, and making the most profit they can, and selling as many of them as they can, but not getting into into buildings and boats and. Uh, God let's knows let's what go else. down the list: um, luggage, apartments, helicopters, speedboats, and and probably they shouldn't Jacket. have got into hypercars either because hypercars uh, it, it's very very expensive cars. to develop, and you know the the market for them is you know you can count on well probably the fingers of a few people, but uh, there's not going to be a, 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 it's not like you're going to sell a hundred of them a week or anything, is it? Right. Yeah, I did no. wonder when they kept announcing all these cars in 2019 and 2018. It's like, we're going to make 10 of them. It's like the right. R&D costs that you've sunk into that car is probably break even at best. Um, yeah. So, yeah, But even, you know, even um, designing the DB10 for Spectre it, and then not turning that into a production car makes no sense because it must have cost them tens right. of millions to do that. And I can't see right. how they they benefited you know they're in well, the bomb ferrari did ferrari did because you know asterisk lawyers uh they basically got <laughs> yes. db10 design didn't they they just yes. say well if you're not going to make it we'll go make a db10 yeah yeah ferrari. i forgot about that actually yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe the conclusion from all of this is you cannot build a company that only sells products to james bond fans yes <laughs> yes yeah, that's one of them i don't i'm going to go out of limb here and say that I don't think Aston Martin are going to see a significant uptick in sales because of no time to die. Uh, no. 
If you I wanted don't... to buy an Aston Martin, you've already bought one already, you're planning to buy one. Going to see that film, if you have that kind of money, is not probably going to tip you over the edge to go, oh, I'm, I'm not going to buy that Ferrari DB10 knockoff. I'm going to go buy the Aston Martin. I don't think it's going to, <laughs> I don't think it's going to have <laughs> the impact that they that they probably are now clinging on to after a few years ago saying they didn't need James Bond anymore. Oh, God, yeah. Well, again, this goes back to the mid-90s, because as I pointed out before, so at that 1994 L.A. James Bond convention, where, you know, where they hired the company that did Star Trek conventions, they did the video, we're going to have this new Aston Martin. And then, like, the guy, you know, at the time, there was a United Arts division at MGM. They said, no, we're not. We're going to, like, get, we're going to do a bit, deal with a company that can get us some exposure. So that's how that that's how BMW got brought into the franchise, you know, and that was clearly a last minute replacement because the BMW is hardly in the movie in Goldeneye. Ironically, um, there's more BMW in no time to die. Yeah. I did point out to somebody that new book, uh, James Bond's Aston Martin DB5, they actually put the BMW replica on the cover. No, so it doesn't no. even have DB5 on the cover. <laughs> Uh, I could have at least used the car from Goldfinger. Never mm. mind. Yeah. All right. Enough making fun of car uh, companies. Um, oh, but by, by the way, Aston Martin. Yeah. If if you if you um, if you want a brand ambassador, then then I, I am available. You, you just need to uh, <laughs> loan me a car for you know, a couple of years or something. Last part, last point of business really was this week. Um, a few was it a month ago? A few weeks ago? Well, this is this kind of rumor has been kicking around since twenty seventeen, the, the the year that MGM lost trying to sell themselves to a Chinese company. Um, Apple first announced, well, not announced, they were leaked through the Wall Street Journal that um, they had an exploratory meeting with MGM about possible acquisition, and then the last week the news came out that oh yeah, Netflix had the same meeting with MGM to talk about possible acquisition. So looks like... I I think it's inevitable because, I mean, MGM has a ton of content. Uh, What streaming services rely upon is content, you know, and as cheap as possible. So if that means that they can buy somebody with that that content and they don't actually have to make it themselves, that is uh, great for them. And, uh, you know... MGM as a going concern it, uh, doesn't seem really to be viable. So um, it, it is it is a content library, and that's it. And well, and MGM is owned by a bunch of hedge funds, and by you know by the industry norm, those hedge funds have been relatively patient. You know, this is now going to be the tenth anniversary of the last yeah. MGM bankruptcy. Yeah, it's so, usually a three-year turn, isn't it, Bill? That's yeah, what I'm looking to do two to three so, years. Yeah, so so. You know, comparatively speaking, they've been patient, and you know there was an estimate that if they sold it, it might be worth ten billion dollars uh, to sell the whole thing. I've seen some Bond fans. Say, oh well, maybe Eon could buy the Bond franchise first. Like, no, they're, they're right. you know, MGM's yeah. not going to sell the Eon. They're going to hold on to everything and get the right. biggest price they can. That's that's how yeah. business works. Your house without a roof at that point. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other kind of angle I was thinking of was obviously the streaming platforms. It's the, you know, the streaming wars. We're going to see them over the next couple of years about catalogs and stuff. I mean, the price of licensing your content to be on a platform has gone up and up and up and up and up. And so Netflix and those kind of guys and Amazon are probably sick of writing checks to basically borrow content, right? With time limits. Yeah. Having it owned by you perennially, um, you know, you probably have to like license it three times for it to, to instead of buying it. So why not just buy it, be done with it, and have it forever? So they'd get fifty two hundred films, countless TV series, and a lot of intellectual property. Um, and, and oh, by the way, fifty percent of the James Bond rates. But my suspicion is yours, Bill. It's the hedge funds are actually out there canvassing for a buyer, rather than this is all happening organically that yeah. they're having meetings with all these other companies. I don't think, I don't think it's Dr. Strangelove where Netflix is like, well, Apple had a meeting, so we can't have a salt mine gap. It's, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think it's the hedge funds or one of them is actively seeking a buyer at this point. There was a story last year sometime that, well, one of the hedge fund guys is like, well, he was kind of liking going to all these Hollywood uh, premieres and stuff. So well, maybe we'll like try and like run it for a while, but you know, after a while, I'm sure they started to run the numbers. It's like you know, it's like I reckon it, not, not, if you want to go to premieres, there's a cheaper way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say there is also not probably going to be a better time to sell than the next twelve months, as Apple TV Plus is trying to ramp up. Netflix is now feeling competition coming from Disney Plus and other services. Yeah, that's a good point. So and, it, and Apple and Plus. Be, and Apple Plus has a, a, a content gap, certainly with Disney yeah. Plus and with Netflix. So, because their streaming service actually costs less, I forget the, the prices off. Well, there's hardly anything on it, which is why. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they, you know, like Apple really needs the content if they well, want to run in that space. So there's two factors to this. One is Apple is sitting on a bunch of cash, and this wouldn't be a blink of the eye to buy MGM. No. Two is. They can actually afford to run their streaming service at cost or at a loss because they make so much money off their hardware sales. Whereas with Netflix and, and all the others, they're actually, they have to run their business at a profit or you know, report to their shareholders how much they're losing. Um, so I, I'd say Apple's probably in the, in the driver's seat on this one. Although the mo- I think the more natural fit is Netflix. And and as James just mentioned, you know, fifty two hundred films and TV series and so forth. Um, James, I think and you hot tweeted. Hot tub time machine. Yes, <laughs> yeah. a lot of the stories mentioned, you know, James Bond and hot tub time machine. But like, they have the old United Artists Library, which means you have In the Heat of the Night, you have West Side Story, you have oh. Um, Midnight Cowboy, uh, you know, a ton of movies people have heard of. Um, one problem the United Artists had was apparently people didn't really, you know, the general public didn't really know the United Artists name, but it has, you know, a ton, you know, the Magnificent Seven. Right, um, right. I'll do Netflix's pitch for them internally to buy this, which is you do what TCM do, which is every week you pick a movie, you have somebody do an introduction to it, talk about the history of the movie, maybe have an interview with somebody. You can do it on the cheap. And then you make that your feature Friday night classic or something, and you put it on the homepage on Friday, and you pick a movie every week, and you've got 5,200 of them to go through. I mean, this thing could last you years. Uh, they, could, they could hire James Bond and friends to do the Bond movies. There you there go. There you go. Yeah. Right. 
gosh, we might have to hire an agent now. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so so it makes sense for Apple to be interested in. Uh, I don't uh, personally think that Apple's audience for Apple Plus and the rest of it is actually a good fit for an old classic movie library. No. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just they're looking at the demographics of their subscribers, but who knows? Um, that's why I'm thinking Netflix is a is is a better fit because you've kind of got everybody on that platform, and, well, and Netflix is being more aggressive about making movies, yes, and original productions, and so to have all the intellectual property from MGM to be able to go, you know, well, we want to re- reboot X Y Z franchise or make another version of it or whatever, they've they've got the rights to do it now on the cheap, um, and that's not even I think in that sense. The Bond IP is like the cherry on the cake. I don't even right. think it's probably part of the dis- – it's probably not the centerpiece of the calculation. By the way, just a uh, something to clarify for our audience. When we talk about the MGM Film Library, we are not talking about MGM films released before 1986. Those films are in the Warner Brothers Film Library. Right. Yep. Which I can explain that, but it would take 10 minutes and it's not <laughs> worth it. It's just – yeah, so – so in other words, the MGM Film Library does not include Gone with the Wind, does not include Mutiny on the Bounty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just no, but point it doesn't everything from United Artists. Right. I just, I just saw some story about this uh, somebody was sharing on YouTube, and I like was watching this incredibly major error in it, and I was like flagging people, warning, warning. So just FYI. So we could be looking at a future maybe next year onwards, whereby if you want to watch a James Bond film, it may only be available in one place. Well, and as a uh, additional complicating factor, the current home video contract is held by Fox Video, which is owned by Walt Disney Company. and uh, But that contract runs out, I believe, the middle of this year. Yeah, it does. So... That there's that level of uncertainty on top of all this streaming service stuff. Will we see another James Bond box set? Maybe, but they'll have a limited time to sell it. And if 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 anybody's been keep, keeping track of what home release products in retail, I mean, you've got to at least give yourself a year to sell it through. And um, doing it now and having your contract terminated in the summer is probably not realistic. So. It was always weird, the DVDs being at 21st Century Fox anyway, especially right. during the Sony era of Craig. It was this kind of weird setup uh, that MGM broke. And by the way, MGM are the ones that broke the home video releases, uh, right. not Dan Jack. So, um, yeah, and of course, you know, Disney's putting all the Fox catalog behind a vault, so you can't get to the old movies anymore either. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. There's a lot of things to be shaken out. But I, I just think that, you know, we were talking the other week about Billie Eilish is a good way to get new fans into the franchise, maybe, or who wouldn't go to see a James Bond film, maybe. But you know what? The the worst thing you can do is stick everything behind a little paywall that not everybody subscribes to and limit how people can access the films. Um, so I could see if a Netflix or an Apple buy it, you're not going to see Bond films on TV. You're not going to see them on other people's platforms. Um, so it's well, that become... means ITV may, may as well pack it in then. <laughs> right, yeah, that's... ITV ITV four is going to be like you may as well switch it off at this point. My advice: if you've got DVDs and Blu-rays, hold on to them. Yes, as yeah. any fan of an old Fox movie will tell you now, you can't get to it anymore. 
Yeah. Well, I, I've got all the Bond movies on a on a media server, so uh, I just need to dial into that every time I fancy. Officially, officially, officially licensed. Well, and, and here's another <laughs> example of just how ephemeral all this can be. So, like last year, with great fanfare, there was this uh, service of Viacom. We're starting a James Bond channel. It was like in September, yep. whatever it was. And by the end of the year, oh, we're not going to have the James Bond channel anymore. Bye. Like, what was that all about? Oh, and don't forget Ultraviolet. Yeah. I mean, Ultraviolet was the the digital locker for the DVDs and Blu-rays you bought. And then, like, that went away. You know, so it's like, well, what happens to all this stuff? I think there's an internet meme about Bruce Willis' lawsuit about his iTunes collection or something. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but there's some interesting things going to come up about like who actually, if you own it, what does that actually mean anymore? So interesting times ahead. Do you each have a personal preference if somebody was to buy MGM, who it would be? Um, yeah, I'd prefer it to be Amazon because we've got Amazon at home. <laughs> <laughs> Save you some money. You know, my wife had Amazon Prime. She didn't even tell me. Uh, I only found that out in like the last few months. So it's like, I guess, I guess I agree with David. <laughs> Since we're already paying for Amazon Prime, then I think Bond would be a bit more in people's faces if Amazon bought it than Netflix or an Apple. I mean, I remember what Amazon did when they got the paperback rights in the UK. I mean, the Bond stuff was everywhere on Amazon for a bit. Do you have a preference? Um, not Apple because it would it would cut a large part of the audience out. I think um, Netflix is kind of ubiquitous in the states. Like I don't know anybody who doesn't have access to it. So in terms of like reaching everybody, you could possibly yeah. Want to reach. But but at Apple, you can you can watch Apple content on um, the um, Amazon Fire Sticks now. Yeah, um, but I just don't think you're marketed to unless you're in the Apple ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, and I'd say in terms of new movies going forwards, because they'd have to bankroll the new movies, Amazon or Netflix would have the money to do it. Apple, I'm not sure, are investing in film. I think they're looking like TV series. So, Well, yeah. I'll just say don't count out Disney. Um, a couple I months ago, a, a couple months ago, Robert Iger did an interview and it was it was wasn't a throwaway question, but I could tell it was kind of a question toward the end of the interview. Anything else you'd like to buy? Oh, I like James Bond movies. It was some mm-hmm. kind of vague comment. Yeah, it was. And I remember doing. Well, it had to be because otherwise he'd be under investigation by the SEC. Exactly, right. but but at the same time, Iger knows everything he says is under scrutiny, and so you know the fact that he said anything at all, you know. Yeah. You mean it, no smoke it, without fire kind of thing? Right, because I remember I did a post and someone did a comment, oh, this is clickbait, blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, it's not clickbait because Iger just kind of signaled that, like, he, under the right circumstances, he might be interested. And it's like, it's like, no, it's not definite. But just the fact he said anything at all, right. he, could have, he could have just said, oh, I can't talk about it and just let, leave it at that. But no, he actually... He did mention it, so... I'll go as far as to say this. Disney buying MGM would be the worst thing that could happen to the James Bond franchise. And if anybody disputes that, ask the catering department at Pinewood. Yeah. You no longer work there, because Disney oh. didn't 
Oh, Disney have been through Pinewood like a, a knife through butter oh, getting those people that have worked there for years what? and years and decades and decades because they took a 10-year lease out on it, so basically own it. Um, all the Fox films that they bought when they took over Fox, now you can't even, if you're a theater, rent Alien because Disney don't want it out in the wild because it's not a Disney film. They just keep it behind their vault. Um, I think it's at the point where a Monopolies and Mergers Commission would be like, yeah, you, you can't own everything. There has to be a line somewhere. And, and and I'm, by the way, I'm not endorsing Disney buying it. I'm just to be clear. I just, in fact, I'd kind of dismissed the thought. And then when Iger said that, I said, well, something to keep an eye on, just a, a wary eye on at that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, the, I'm, I mean, I'll say this again, never seen it. Don't, not a fan of it, but I don't think any Star Wars fan out there is particularly thrilled with Disney either. No, I, I was I was just going to say actually that um, if Disney buy Bond, then they can announce a, a Money Penny spin-off, an M spin-off, a, a Felix. You know that's spin-off. the first thing they do. Yeah, yeah, and then when Bond Twenty Six underperforms, they just cancel them all. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> in fact, they, and, in, and you in, know what? You know the funny thing, David. The irony would be the fans would be like. Oh, I prefer the old days when we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> right. You know what they might do? I'm, I'm just. This is just me, totally speculating off the top of my head. Just this second, assign it to Kevin Feige, <laughs> put it under his portfolio at Marvel. Right. It's like uh, that's not a prediction. It's like a half joke. I just want to be clear. But like, at I the think same the time, I, I can't kid about it totally. I think the difference between I think the difference between Disney and everybody else that's that's kind of like uh, seeing um, MGM kind of on the ropes a little bit and looking at it as a cheap acquisition. Disney like to own and control, and I think if Eon and sorry if Dan Jack were not willing to sell up their fifty percent of the rights, and it was just MGM's up for sale, I think Disney would not want to be involved with owning half of something. Right. So. Um, I think that's probably what takes them out of contention, unless it's the whole caboodle, right? And they cut a deal with Dan Jack at the same time. By by the way, just real quick, we we just mentioned this. We haven't had a chance to talk about it on the podcast. So yes, Disney has this big long-term lease at Pinewood, and they now control virtually all of Pinewood. Netflix put a had a similar uh, agreement at Shepperton. I think that's the name. Uh, I think actually the Netflix deal was first, and that caused. Disney to retaliate by grabbing control of Pinewood. One of the Yeah. So, which Leavesden's under the control of Warner Brothers. Yeah. yeah. And, um, which, by the way, Bond is completely airbrushed out of Leavesden history. If yeah. you go to Leavesden or you look at anything online or anything written about Leavesden by Warner Brothers, it's like nobody mentioned Goldeneye and Peter Lamont that basically built Leavesden. Yeah. Um, an old and Rolls, then Warner Brothers Rolls Royce factory. Yeah. yeah, and they bought it, and Warner Brothers bought it to do the Harry Potter series. And the whole genesis of Leavesden is it, you can't find it on any one of Warner Brothers website. It's like I believe it. I believe that. History. So not not that we want to talk about Bond twenty six at all, but uh, there is some question about what happens to where do you make Bond twenty six at whatever point in the future. So yeah. a topic to visit in more detail another day, but yes, that there is some uncertainty there. Yeah, and given that nobody knows the timeline, and, and um, I think this is public information, that Eon are terrible at booking Pinewood, so they just assume it's going to be available for them. Hence, we had Leafs, and hence we had, you know, tomorrow they shot mostly somewhere else. Um, 
now Pinewood's doing a roaring trade and the demand is high. I mean, these were in the days that it wasn't busy and they couldn't book it, right? So at short notice. So right. I don't think this, No, I, I'm going to make a prediction that No Time to Die is the last James Bond film produced at Pinewood yeah. in the next 10 years. Yeah, I, and uh, I mean, after the 10 year lease is up, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Disney keeps it anyway. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's going to be a lot of changes for 126 to talk about business, locations, shooting, staff, crew, ownership. There's, yeah, we could be looking at like a deep reboot in terms of the back, the, the, the business side of it. Yeah. All right. So everybody um, excited for the potential of a second trailer coming out in about a few weeks? I don't need to see a whole lot more. Um, I think we talked about this on a previous episode. Like maybe you have a scene that like exhibits all this wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge dialogue that we've been told that she's responsible for. I mean, something, in other words, some kind of change of pace for this trailer compared yes. to the first trailer. Yes. Most of the Craig trailers, the cinema theatrical release trailer has featured a long dialogue sequence rather than a sequence of shots. Right. So yes, I agree with you. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to be different um, I would think they would like want to put a little more on a Diarmas because she's a hot property now. Yeah. Uh, more so than when she filmed her scenes <laughs> for No Time yeah. to Die. Yes, as ranked by IMDb today, the <laughs> IMDb barometer, Anna Diarmas is the number one cast member of No Time to Die. Featuring Daniel Craig as James Bond. Also featuring Daniel Craig. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in the title, maybe in the titles they can put uh, yeah, Albert R. Broccoli's Eon Productions presents Anna Diarmas in No Time to Die, and then you have all these other names, and then and Daniel Craig as James Bond. That's the yeah. last cast member you see. Well, Lashana Lynch, who's probably the second most on-screen character in this film, is down in like the fifteenth spot or something. Yeah, uh, probably. Probably so. they are thinking that maybe they should have given a. Uh, bit more meat to uh to Anna de Armas, but uh which is funny because I'm remembering back to our podcast we did with like eight people on the launch event and everybody was like who is that <laughs> right yeah yeah back yeah. in eight back in April it literally nobody oh, yeah. knew and then somebody pointed out it's like um I think she was in Blade Runner <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know I, I didn't realize I didn't realize that at all yeah right in fact I have to plead guilty I made light of the way she spoke in that, uh, oh, the interview thing on at Jamaica because train wreck in Jamaica. Yeah, she was, you know, she was probably like jet lagged or whatever, but like she you could hardly hear her and they and and I did say this, like she was not served well by uh, Carrie Fukunaga. No, uh, Carrie, Carrie, what should I say? Oh, we'll just fake it, like, or whatever he said. Just like oh, this is terrible. We'll just wing it. Yeah. Which. Going back to Ben Wishel's comment, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows how much of that was true? On that note, gentlemen, um, we'll call it a day and um, say goodbye to our European friends And uh, on this historic day and probably reconvene next week. Well, I, I'm safely here still in Europe, so I'm okay. <laughs> you know, uh, I've read so much about Brexit from my... Uh, spy command twitter feeds like it's been a big headache and i don't even live in europe so right imagine what it was like for us here involved oh man yep. 
All right, guys. Have a great week. Yeah. We'll catch you again next time. You too. Thanks very much. Cheers, Thanks for James. having me. Cheers, Cheers Bill. Thank you.